Welcome to the checkout, Matt Wilson, director of the Sakanju Food Sovereignty Initiative. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. I was really stoked uh, when I heard about you folks and uh, checked out your video. So give us an idea of where you're located and um, you know why you guys started doing this. Yeah, so we are located on the homelands of the Sichungu Lakota Oyate, which is modern day um, South Central South Dakota, otherwise known as the Rosebud Indian Reservation. Um, and so we were um, founded in 2014, um, originally under our um, economic development arm of the tribe, which is called Redco, um, Rosebud Economic Development Corporation. And so um, the, the goal really was to um, really bring about a modern and regenerative um, indigenous food system here in Rosebud. Tell us a bit about what the food situation is on the Rosebud Reservation and surrounding communities um, and why. Maybe some of the historical context as well. Yeah, definitely. So historically, um, our people were um, nomadic and we were hunter and gatherer people. And so we really relied on the buffalo as our um, primary food source. And so we followed buffalo throughout the season um, all across the Great Plains. Um, and so we were really um, self-sufficient and independent and really lived with the land, not on it. Um, and so our goal was really just to be as in tune with nature as we could. <clears throat> and so with that was having a vast um, knowledge of all the different plants and animals um, and being able to use every parts of them, whether they're used for food or medicinal purposes. Um, and so taking that kind of lifestyle where we were really healthy and our diets really were um, you know, really lean, lean protein, um, you know, really, um, high in fiber and, 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 you know, just a lot of vegetables. Um, and then coming to colonization where we were forcibly put onto reservation lands, um, which weren't very, um, you know, production wise, weren't the, weren't the best in terms of food production. And so we had to rely on the government. We were forced into dependency. Um, and so we were forced to eat government rations, um, which is now, um, to this day, it's called the Commodity Food Distribution Program. And so the foods um, through that program were really, um, you know, highly processed. All the fruits, vegetables, even meat is very um, processed. It's canned usually. And so um, taking that traditional diet and really abruptly changing that to a diet that's really, you know, high in that kind of um, flour, sugar, and oil, which is very hard on our bodies. And so it really developed all these different health, um, health outcomes based on that diet. And so, um, that, that, uh, their food, the food system to this day is still the same way. Um, you see, and you go into our grocery stores that the food is very, um, you know, in terms of the produce is very low quality. Um, some of the vegetables you get on there and the fruits is very like moldy and just isn't like the most appealing. Um, and it's also very high. Like the, the cost is really expensive, like $10 for like a small thing of strawberries and, you know, some of them already like molded. So um, that just turns people off. And so what our grocery stores here really catered to is um, the EBT market. And so a lot of the cheaper foods are all the foods that are really bad for you. So looking at ramen noodles, looking at um, frozen pizza and things like that. And so people are really forced to just have to deal with the food they can get. Um, transportation is like one of the biggest issues to that. Um, you take Rosebud, which is land-based the size of like Rhode Island and 
only, you know, three of the grocery stores that are here are in two of the towns here. Um, and so we have 20 communities across Rosewood. And so all the businesses and the grocery stores and community stores are kind of in the center of our land base. And so some of our outlining communities have to make 40 to 30 miles round trip just to get to a convenience store or a grocery store. And so it's very prohibited to get even just the basic kind of food needs, let alone local or healthy foods. And so that's kind of where we come in is to provide um, some of that and also provide education um, around nutrition and um, teaching people how to grow their own food, how to forage their own food and um, harvest their own food. And so um, really taking the idea of like um, being like the self-sufficient kind of going back to the ways that we used to be. What kind of stuff are you growing or preparing? So we have a one acre teaching and production farm. It's called Kewakpala Gardens. Um, and so we grow your, your typical, you know, produce that you would see at a farmer's market or even the produce section of a grocery store. And so um, people are really loving the beets and the tomatoes, um, but we also try to offer some um, different varieties of stuff too. So we have a, a lot of heirlooms. Um, and we also have some exotics like your okra that you normally wouldn't see around here. Um, and our goal is really just to meet people where they're at is, you know, people like the things that they're used to seeing in the grocery stores, but also just kind of bringing those exotics in as well. Um, and so we started our farmer's market five years ago and it, it really grew. And at first we were a little bit discouraged because there was only about two vendors at the time and not a lot of traffic in terms of customers. Um, but the, the goal are the, I guess the best practices for working in indigenous communities is really being consistent. And so it was important for us to come back every year and every week to make sure we have that farmer's market. Um, so for five years ago, we had, you know, two vendors and today, you know, we have about 30 that come regularly throughout the, the farmer's market season. Um, and it's become this big part of our community too. Like, um, we would have to cancel sometimes for, you know, bad weather. It was raining or it was storming out. You know, people would get so mad at us that we were um, having to cancel for a farmer's market that day, um, which at the time was kind of like make us feel bad. But it was such a cool, it's such a weird um, challenge or issue that we had to face because of that. But it's kind of cool that people were really wanting the farmer's market that bad. So um, it's been pretty cool to see that grow. Um, and also, based on the farmer's market, we also know that we need to kind of decentralize our food system. So taking that food access away from just the center of our land base and kind of get into those communities that don't have a grocery store or a gas station. And so we launched our mobile market two years ago. Um, that's basically a cargo van that we aggregate a lot of our produce. Um, we aggregate some of the um, food products from our vendors and kind of just go along that. Um, we have a route system. So East North East, um, east, north, south, and west, we call it in, in our language. Um, we would grow, go around to all those different communities and kind of do like a, almost like a ice cream truck, if you will, kind of playing music and people come out and put in their orders with us. And so, yeah. And then uh, another one too is last year we launched our CSA program, which we're dubbing TSA, Tribally Supported Agriculture Program. So um, we source a lot of our like um, produce and food products from tribal members and so we named it a TSA program so our goal with that one is also to really um, make sure we get some cheaper products out to people as well that people can afford so we have a sliding scale um, payment system for that program um, based on family size and um, financial situations so 
yeah, it's, it's been really cool to see uh, the community um, really take to local foods, especially in these past two years with the pandemic and everything. Um, it's just been really great to see all the support and um, also just seeing all the people start their own gardens at home. What do you mean by food sovereignty? So food sovereignty, um, it's really just making sure that you have choice on where your food comes from. Um, we didn't really have that choice. And so our goal is really just to take that power back in terms of um, being able to grow our own food, um, being able to see um, what kind of techniques that go into that production. So um, we practice regenerative agriculture, making sure that we kind of mimic nature as much as possible using little to no chemicals. Um, and so that's something we're trying to teach at our farm for anybody that comes up there with our internship programs or apprenticeship programs. Um, and that's also um, key to our regenerative food system vision for the year 2050s that um, making sure there's some kind of education and also policy needed at the tribal level to be able to enact that change throughout the reservation. Your organization has received some recognition and, um, and funding lately. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So we were, um, uh, we applied for the Rockefeller Foundation's Food System Vision Prize. Um, and the goal is really to <clears throat> create a vision for the year 2050 in terms of um, what a regenerative and sustainable food future looks like. And so we submitted our vision out of 1,300 applicants worldwide. Um, and we were one of the 10 that were selected to win this award, um, which was $200,000 in unrestricted funding, um, which is really just aimed to help us um, further our vision. Um, and so it was really cool to, to be a part of that process. Um, you know, we have visionaries from across the world, and here we are in Rosa, South Dakota, you know, a little small reservation. And um, it was just amazing to see that we were selected and being able to share our story, um, share the amazing work that not only we're doing, but our community members are doing as well. Um, so it's been really cool to, to be a part of that process. And it's really been um, put us on the map, if you will, and just um, because of that whole experience, we've been invited to a lot of um, panels and presentations and just having a seat at the table and conversations that we normally weren't a part of. What should our audience understand about the impact of colonization and, and land theft and um, all the various iterations of the way the federal government has tried to um, manage and, and treat uh, Native American nations? Like, what should our audience understand that, that you know, and, and why your work is so significant? I think I would want them to understand that our work is is really for everybody. It isn't just for our own communities. Our goal is really just to preserve and to protect the land because um, we we identify that, you know, climate change is one of the biggest reasons for us to do this work. Um, we are trying to create a uh, sustainable and healthy future for the next seven generations. And right now, you know, climate change is our biggest threat to that. And so in order to have that future, we need to make sure we do, need to do all we can in terms of fighting you know for policy for land rights and um we don't want to see any more pollution of our lands and so um that's kind of it it's just like protecting the land as much as we can so we're not trying to take the land from everybody you know we recognize that that's not possible but in terms of like the public lands like our national parks you know that's some of the stuff that we would love to see back in the protection of native people 
Yeah. So uh, hashtag land back is not just a, a marketing slogan. It's, it's, it's real in terms of land reform. Yeah, definitely. And it doesn't even, even just pertain to land reform as well. It pertains to us like revitalizing our culture, bringing back our language, bringing back keystone species like bison back into our homelands. And so it's, it's all encompassing of that. It's just like a, um, like I would say like a Renaissance era for us kind of just uh, relearning some of that language and some of that culture that was lost. How can our audience support the type of work you're doing? I'd say the easiest thing they can do is, you know, amplify the work that indigenous people are already doing, um, you know, sharing their, the work, inviting them to, um, you know, different panels and presentations, supporting them monetarily. Um, a lot of our work that we're doing is, um, you know, collectively. So we aren't just being the only ones doing it. We're um, really bringing in our own community members and um, other community organizations to, to do this work. Cause we, we know we can't do it all by ourselves just with our one organizations. Um, and so even with our community members, it's just all about making sure that the vision that we have for ourselves is um, that's community driven. Are there other organizations in your area of the country or around the country that you are inspired by or that you find to be uh, traveling in the same direction you are? Yeah, I think even just in South Dakota, there's so many different um, Native organizations that are, you know, promoting food sovereignty or just food work in general. Um, some of the ones I like towards is um, Shen River, which is a little bit about three, three and a half hours north of us. Um, they're doing a lot of great stuff with their youth. Um, they have like a um, social enterprise cafe where they work with their youth to develop, you know, job skills, but also provide, um, you know, food and coffee to their community members. Um, Oyate Techa, which is on the Pine Ridge Reservation, they do a lot of cool food production as well with high tunnels. Um, you know, they get, they get the tomatoes, you know, ready to harvest by, you know, May. They, they're on it. Like, they're doing really cool work. And um, it's really inspiring to see what they do and how they um, engage with their community members as well. How do you see, um, you know, some of this recent history around uh, Standing Rock and this uh, growth in the movement of water protectors who are pushing back against the uh, fossil fuel extraction that, you know, obviously, you know, very much impacts uh, Native American uh, nations who are usually in the route of these pipelines that they're trying to put in the ground? Like, how, how do you see that? And how... Is that something that um, you are also trying to uh, prepare for or work against? Yeah, so Standing Rock was uh, a really big pivotal moment for indigenous communities. Um, it was the first time that many of our um, members of our Ocheti Shakoin, which is Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota coming together to really stand up to, um, to the pipelines. Um, and it was amazing to see all people from all different ages come out and kind of protest that, you know, for something basic as wanting clean water, um, which shouldn't be something that we have to fight for, but, you know, unfortunately that is something that we're, we're fighting for to this day. Um, but yeah, just protecting our, our waterways, also our food systems as well. Um, looking at line three, um, which really goes into the, um, a lot of the areas where we um, harvest wild rice. And so that's like an indigenous food that's really sacred to a lot of people. Um, and, you know, that's being threatened right now. And we just want to make sure that um, that food's available for, you know, our children and our future generations. And um, I just want to say that, you know, I would hope that people would support that and really look into why people are fighting for this. Cause it's, it's just 
comes down to something so basic as wanting this food or this water, this land, um, safe, clean, and healthy for future generations. Awesome. Matt Wilson, any closing thoughts for our audience? Yeah, I just want to say, um, you know, there's never a better time than to support, you know, indigenous communities and also the work that we're doing in our own community um, is like a model for what others could be doing for their communities. And, and it's very place space specific. Um, but some of the stuff that we do and the ways we go about it is definitely um, replicable that you can do in your own community. Um, and so a lot of it is just really working with your community members, making sure there's a lot of input and feedback and making sure that the, the vision and the goal is what they want as well. So yeah, love our communities. This is awesome. Thanks so much for making time to be on the checkout. Best of luck with everything you're doing out there. I hope that it inspires others and I hope folks continue to support you. It's amazing. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, thank you. Plum, yeah.